It's a Monday, OG, and while you and I were out playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement all weekend, you know who was keeping us safe? Marines. Let's just say it wasn't Doug in his level. It's not Doug. Okay. It wasn't Doug in his level 18 fighter with his plus four sort of invisibility. Nice. It wasn't him. It was our armed forces. We start off our Mondays here in the basement with a shout out to the men and women in our armed forces. On behalf of the men and women from Navy Federal Credit Union and the whole gang here down in the basement, big salute to the people keeping us safe. Let's all go stack some Benjamins together now, shall we? Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and have you ever played the game Dungeons & Dragons? More than 50 million people have, including me and Joe's mom. Speaking of, I'm just sitting here preparing her lobster bisque because it's National Men Make Dinner Day. Staying for supper to tell us all the juicy gossip about the infighting over the company that made D&D, we welcome the author of Game Wizards, John Peterson. Plus, in our headline segment, there's a new Bitcoin ETF. Should you dive in? Plus, we'll share a TikTok minute about 14-year-old homeowners and throw out the Haven lifeline to a lucky guy wondering about equities versus SPX. That stands for Spanx, right? And besides that, you know, trivia. And now, two guys who are level 17 ETF users with swords that look suspiciously like donuts. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Want to see me make this donut invisible? Ever have a Hertz donut? Oh, hey-oh, ba-boom. Welcome to 5th Grade Jokes for the Win. I'm Joe Salci. I average, once again, for the win. Don't know why everything is for the win. Everything's for the win. I gotta stop. Stackybenjamins.com. Stack it. What, what the hell am I better talking than being, about? having it be for the gram? Because <laughs> now you're all about the gram. Now you're like, do you want to do this for the gram? You keep on asking me, can we do this for the gram? Hey, it's all about the gram. It's all yeah. about the gram. Well, you know, we're influencers. We're influencers, OG. I certainly am. A couple guys that. like us. I certainly am an influencer. Well, that you influenced me to get these donuts today before we record. We got a great show today. John Peterson talking about the fight over Dungeons and Dragons. If you haven't heard this story before, whether you're an active D&D player or somebody who, you know, just experiment a little bit in college, or you don't even care about role-playing games, you know what's fun? I'll tell you what's fun, this story, because there's so many case studies in this one story. It's going to be amazing. John Peterson wrote this. He's a New York Times bestselling author and uh, hitting it again here, talking D&D. Sounds amazeballs. It is going to be so fun. We also have had this a big move in the exchange traded fund community. We're going to talk about that too. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. 
State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, let's move into our headline. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us via CNBC. And uh, a couple weeks ago, OG, we were talking about the new Bitcoin ETF. You see that bad boy got launched? Go team. And sure enough, the Bitcoin ETF did exactly what our TikTok Minute friend said that it would make it do, at least over the short run, Bitcoin uh, spiked up. But a Bitcoin exchange traded fund. So is that a good idea? I, I can't see how. Why not just own Bitcoin? This is uh, was sent to us by listener Adam, uh, this video. And here is CNBC talking to one wealth manager about the new Bitcoin ETF. Well, it's a horrible idea. I mean, if you think of what crypto is, what it technology allows us to do, basically, we now have the ability to send money just as easily as we can send an email. Anyone can go and create their own private keys much more easily than you can create a bank account. I can send Bitcoin directly to you without going through a bank or through an intermediary. All of Bitcoin ETF is it wraps this new 21st century technology in 20th century legacy infrastructure. It's as though we invented email and then decided we were going to use our email program to print out letters we were going to take down to the post office. The banking system and the brokerage accounts are the post office. 
And all this does is it strips out all the benefits of Bitcoin and leaves us with nothing but the price volatility. It is. He's not wrong there, OG. I mean, instead of using Bitcoin, instead of betting on it for the efficacy, all you could do in an ETF is bet on the volatility. That's all you're doing. No, thanks. What a great analogy. It's like we created email and we made letters about it and took them down to the post office. Uh, that's just absolutely fabulous. And then, and then I absolutely love, by the way, the, uh, this is CNBC Asia. I love where the interviewer goes from here. It's a good way to look at it. I'm, I'm not sure if I can say this, but here it goes. I mean, this is sort of a back asshole is what you're saying, uh, right? And we should eventually be trading, say, stocks or, or bonds, et cetera, on blockchain, but not the other way around. That's exactly my view, yes. I mean, if you look at right now, what is one of the main pain points I have as a wealth manager is opening up accounts. You probably know very well how difficult it is to open a corporate bank account or a trust bank account in Asia. Whereas if we wanted to create you a new Bitcoin address, we could do it within seconds, if not minutes. And if we wanted to create a multi-signature wallet so that we wanted extra security, my lawyer, my accountant could each have a key to make sure that in case I, I lose one, that technology is all there. What the ETF does is it flips it completely the other way around. It's basically saying this is something for you to speculate on the price on and not actually look into and understand the technology and how the technology can make the financial world better. Just an absolutely fantastic point of view, I thought. Nailed it. Even the East German judge liked that one. That's a 9.9. That's a <laughs> yeah, I can't understand why you would own a Bitcoin ETF if you wanted to participate in Bitcoin, just buy Bitcoin. Yeah, let's talk about where an ETF helps. Do you because, buy a cash ETF? Right. People that don't understand what an exchange-traded fund is, though, they may not know what you and I are talking about and why this is worthless. So let's start off with, OG, can you just explain to everybody what an exchange-traded fund is and really why you would own one? Well, an exchange-traded fund is a collection of stocks, generally. Uh, could be other things, but generally a collection of stocks that um, a fund manager puts together. Sometimes it's meant to mimic uh, another thing, you know, index or something, but it's just a collection of things. And instead of having to go buy a hundred different companies to get the diversification you want, you buy one. And that specifically, by the way, is why you buy it. I mean, if I can buy 500 of the biggest companies in America with one trade, I mean, think about how much diversification that is. That's kick-ass. Right. And that's the point. It's like you get uh, one, one trade, one ticker, one transaction cost, and you don't need you know, $5,000 or $10,000 to go out and buy one share of each one of these companies. I mean, Amazon's trading at 3000 bucks a share, right? So if you wanted to buy one share of Amazon, you need $3,000. Or you can buy one share of the S&P 500 for $450 right now. Great. And you've got one of everything. Yeah. So much, so much safer for the average investor to do. And also another cool thing about exchange traded funds that I like OG is the fact that they're self-cleaning, meaning that if a company's really sucking it, uh, that company leaves the S&P 500, let's say. If I own the S&P 500 index, the index automatically changes to reflect me not owning that anymore. So while there certainly are some mediocre companies in that top 500 that's in the S&P 500, if a company's really, really not doing it, it cleans itself, Yeah, which is also nice. I mean, weeding the garden when you're an individual stock investor is hard, like deciding how to keep the right allocations where it is. And uh, the S&P 500 there does it for you. So it's fantastic. So let's put that with Bitcoin. So a Bitcoin exchange traded fund, you're buying Bitcoin. Where's your diversification? 
um, um. This is where asset managers, I think, prey on people. Just, just the hype, right? They just prey on the hype. Hey, guess what? Yeah. You can own a hundred different, I don't know, hundred different Bitcoin. I, I don't know. Does even a crypto, if it's, if it's just different crypto, not Bitcoin, where maybe you own a collection of different cryptos as an ETF, does that make sense? I mean, again, it's still speculation if you're trying to, if you're trying to buy it to turn around and sell it in the future at a, you know, and make 20%, like I hear Bitcoin goes up 20% a day. If that's what you're trying to do, that's pure speculation. If you think that, hey, I think that this is great technology, or I think that, you know, I need to have $20,000 worth of Bitcoin, you know, in case the economy collapses, I can digitally transfer shares or partial coin to other people for food and stuff, and you're using it for that, then you don't care what the price is. You're just, you're just buying it. You're buying it. So you're either speculator or you're using it as a cash alternative. It's just that. And if you're a speculator at that level, why not just go buy some? Yeah, exactly. Just, just, just go buy some. I think that's the takeaway from our headline. Thanks, by the way, Adam, for sending us that video. I found that incredibly compelling and uh, glad you did. And a good way to talk about this recent news of the new ETF on the streets. Definitely not, in our view, a new sheriff in town at all. Hey, time for our TikTok Minute. This is the part of the show where we take a look at one of the TikTok creators out there and find out whether they're giving us some sage advice or are they telling us something maybe a little uh, wacky? Which one do you think it is today, OG? A little wacky. Well, let's see. This, I found at TikTok investors on Twitter. And unfortunately, I can't read the name because the dude who's, who's going to talk here has on has this crazy pattern on his shirt and they put the TikTok name right over it. So unfortunately, I can't tell you who this is, but well... Let's just listen. Son, he bought his first rental property at 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people ask me, well, how? How did he get a loan? How did he find comps? And I tell them, you're asking the wrong question. What you should be asking is why? Why did a 14-year-old come to me and say, dad, I want my own passive income? Because I want, I see what you're doing. That's the question. But the question really is, is that the question? Or is the question really? I recognize that voice. How does a 14-year-old get a loan? That's, I still want to know that answer. That, well, it's because daddy gave it to right? him, obviously. Yeah, that, that still is the question. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's cool that your 14-year-old wants passive income and is thinking about that really early. That's that's fantastic. But still, how does a 14-year-old get a loan? My 14-year-old wants passive income also. He wants to do nothing and get paid. That's perfect. Wait a minute. I'm like, why don't you do uh, the chores? I'm 53. That's what I want. Can you do the chores? And whoa, then you whoa, earn some... Earn some uh, Spending money? Well, Dad, I really want to focus on passive income. This is the part where I don't make my bed and I don't do the dishes and I still get paid. See, here's what I think. If I get three people in my downline to do my chores for me. <laughs> he does that. That, that <laughs> is, he's a great manager of people. He's got the whole MLM system down for the OG household. Yep, he sure does. Yeah, hey, I'll tell you what, guys. I'll give you $2 if you do the dishes. But doesn't Dad pay you 10 Hey, let's not talk about who gets paid what. You know, I got to negotiate. I got to manage this whole thing. I got all this. What not going on? There's a lot of stuff happening. It's pretty, pretty brilliant. Got a TikTok video you'd like us to take a look at? Send those to me, Joe, at stackingbenjamins.com. Coming up next, John Peterson going to tell the early days stories of a company called TSR based in a, in a little sleepy town called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And it's the story of people really passionate about a pastime called strategy games. 
and they came up with a strategy game system that ended up taking the world by storm. And sadly, and part of the story that, uh, that we're going to let you dive into later on your own is going to be how it got taken away from both of them. We'll touch on it a little bit, but I think there's so many, so many lessons just in the early days of creating a thing like Dungeons and Dragons. I can't wait to talk to John about it. So in a second, John Peterson coming down to the basement, but a man with a rant and maybe some trivia. Let's see what Doug's up to. Hey, stackers, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, proud father of three Sharpays who each own their own condos. People ask me, well, how? I mean, how did they get a loan? How do they sniff out the right investment? How do they open doors without opposable thumbs? I tell them, you're asking the wrong questions. The question is, do they have grass in the bathrooms instead of toilets? No, no, they don't. But that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, not the part about me owning three dogs, but the grass in the bathroom. Everybody can make use of that. That's my new million dollar idea right there. You know what? On to better things. Today is National Men Make Dinner Day. It's the only holiday I've seen with rules attached, as it says right here, no barbecue. Jeez, tying my hands. Just because I'm a man doesn't mean I have to grill meat. This holiday is totally gendering me and sexist. After all these years perfecting my sushi rolls, using my plating tweezers to get the microgreens just right, and working all weekend on my cassoulet, does OG even notice? No, no, he does not. A little thanks would be just super, OG. Cassoulet originates from the southwest of France, the country also known for its wine and cheese. It's stinky, stinky cheese. How stinky is it? It stinks so bad, it made right guard turn left. Secret tells everything, and speed stick slows right down to a halt. Now that's stinky cheese. So my trivia question is, cassoulet probably isn't the best-selling cheese in America. (laughs) You've guessed that already. But what is? I'll be back with the answer right after I put the top on this key lime pie I've been working on. Well, you know, what I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money, 
And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. We usually talk about cheddar here, but today we're talking cheese. According to dairyfoods.com, the site I go to every day for the milk forecast, Americans are drinking less milk but eating more cheese than ever. Back in the 70s, it was around 14 pounds a year, which coincidentally is about what I go through in a weekend of easy cheese shots. But now with our cheese stuffed crusts and cheesy breads and cheese fountains, Yes, it's a real thing. Come on over any time if you want to try it. Americans eat an average of 40 pounds of cheese a year. Are you kidding me? That's like one and a half Sharpays of cheese every year. But which one do they eat the most? Not Sharpays, the cheese. That's right. Bringing home the most cheddar is cheddar. And now, the guy who literally wrote the book on all the cheddar the founders of D&D fought over... Here's John Peterson. And here he comes down the stairs to the basement. My new friend, John Peterson, joins us. How are you, man? I'm excellent. You know, this is a little like more cozy than I was expecting. And then with all the sound rigs and the lights and everything, but you're you're making the best use of the space, I have to say. Doesn't it seem though, John, like a place where when you and I were teenagers, we would have gotten together and we would have done a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. This is the legend that everybody played in their basement. If you have a nice finished basement, that can be great. If you don't, you know, there's a lot of water, you know, six inches of standing water. The sump pump doesn't really work. Yeah. It was more like my childhood. Really, the basement was not where I would have been playing. I was going to say, we've had that before. It is not pretty down here, but we made up for it and tried to make the best out of the best that we could out of uh, what, what is that? Uh, lemons and lemonade, right? Doing that. Let's dive into this. You really set the stage at the beginning of, of game wizards about the, the gaming industry in general and where it is. And there's really two different game industries kind of that you point to at the same time. Let's talk about the big game industry, right? The people making monopoly, that type of thing. Tell me about that game industry first. What was going on in the sixties there? Well, I mean, obviously, board games were phenomenally popular. This was the heyday of when Milton Bradley had re-released The Game of Life, which is actually a game that had been around since the Civil War. The original Milton Bradley kind of gave on a checkerboard. The path was on the 64 squares of a checkerboard, like Game of Life, to like Civil, Civil War uh, combatants, actually. You know, The Game of Life was big. Obviously, Monopoly was huge. And this, this was a time that Monopoly was nearing like its 
40th anniversary. I mean, it came out in the 30s. And so by the 60s, this is a game that is selling 2 million copies a year, right? This Everybody has Monopoly sets. Everybody plays Monopoly. Of course, nobody plays it by the rules. Sure, right. Everybody plays right. by their house rules. But, we, um, we actually talked to Mary Pallon. I don't know if you know Mary. And it was only when I talked to Mary that I realized if you play it by the rules, it's a much shorter game. It's actually is a swingier game. It's, it's, it's way more fun and it's over in 90 minutes. Right, right. No, I love her book, by the way. Yeah, phenomenal research. Uh, but these companies are making big money or they're at least making good money. There's a secondary gaming industry you talk about and a company called Avalon Hill kind of at the start of that. Tell me about this sub kind of like the basement of the of the board gaming universe. Sure. So uh, there's a guy named Charles S. Roberts from Maryland who founded the Avalon Hill company in the late 1950s. He thought he was going to be sent to Korea. He wanted to learn about tactics. He wanted to learn how to be like a better officer and understand combat situations and so on. And so he made this game called Tactics that he self-published originally in 1954. By 1958, he realized it was doing well enough that he could branch out and do a couple other games. So he formed the Avalon Hill Game Company to do that. He had an early success in a game called Gettysburg, which was you know done for the anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. And that, you know, got him a bit of a press windfall. And these were games that would sell a couple hundred thousand copies if they did quite well, um, probably mm. sub a hundred thousand. But they they were board games, usually covered with these chits, these little pieces of cardboard. There would be the positions of all of the military units. And there was a set of rules that governed how you would move these units into conflict with one another on a board that originally they were squares, but quickly they became hex maps. They had these hexagonal maps that they started using as of the early 1960s. And when units came into conflict, you would roll a die and you'd roll this die against a combat resolution table, which was this little table in the rule book. It would say, OK, for this die result, your odds, like if you have three guys facing one guy, um, your odds are pretty good. And so on this, you'll eliminate the one guy. Right. And all your three guys will be fine unless you roll poorly, in which case your guys might lose and you might lose two guys. And that one guy is still there that you're trying to get. And these games formed this subculture. By the mid-1960s, there was a real American subculture that was dedicated to these games that had started to have conventions and put out amateur magazines. They had these clubs. It was a strange, vibrant, white, middle-class youth culture. Yeah, but these aren't the same kids that are playing. You talked about Life in Monopoly, though, John. These aren't the same people playing those games. I mean, as, as you're intimating, these are really involved, deep strategy games. They are. I mean, you know, Risk came out at the end of the 50s, right? Kind of on the tail end of this. Yeah. And like, you know, you can look at Risk and say it's kind of close maybe to what they were doing. But yeah, these were not games like, you know, Candyland, where you just kind of roll the dice, you end up where you end up, you know, or shoots and ladders, you know, things like that. These, these are games that were intended to approximate the experience of command in warfare. So one of the big fans of these games is a gentleman in Wisconsin named Gary Gygax. And you start painting this picture at the beginning of Game Wizards about this uh, Gary Gygax character. Tell me, tell me a little bit about Gary in the early days and how he kind of began to rise to prominence in this group of people who love these strategy games. So Gary started playing these games really with Gettysburg. Gettysburg brought a lot of people into the hobby and he played them with his friends. You know, he was a little older maybe than some of the, the kids who connected up with this by the 60s. You know, he was already in his 30s. He had a family. He had a good job. He had a job as an insurance underwriter in Chicago and he commuted from this little vacation town called Lake Geneva, uh, where he lived down to Chicago every day on the train. You know, what he did while he sat in that hour plus commute on the train 
was study these games and write about these games and correspond with people and design variants. And he was obsessed with, okay, can we make these games better? Pretty much everybody who was into these games for real was always thinking about, okay, I could have divide, you know, figured out a better combat resolution system, or I want to transpose this from here to this other battle that I think is interesting. Almost like what you were, almost like you were talking about John with Monopoly earlier, how we all play Monopoly with these house rules. These guys are playing these complex games and making up their own house rules. They were, and and they would publish them, like I said, in, in these, uh, they call them fanzines, these amateur magazines that Wargaming Clubs had. And, you know, through these fanzines, people shared ideas. It was this kind of vibrant, open source community, right? Nobody cared much about intellectual property. Nobody thought any of these, like, I'm going to do a variant for this $9 board game that they'd be able to sell that and make any money. This was very much a, you know, uh, an intellectual commons that these people are participated in. And, and Gary really gravitated to that aspect of the hobby. And uh, he founded clubs around it. He worked with a group that was called the, the War Game Inventors Guild. It sounds very, very serious. Right. Um, yes. You know, it, it, had, it had kind of like a peer review dimension. People would look at each other's designs and bet them which one's better and even maybe put them out in a semi-commercial, I'll sell this for a buck at a convention, right? This is my version of what you should really do, you know, for the Battle of the Bulge. We talk about business and being a good business person. He's this guy playing these games, but did, did I read this right in your book that he never graduated from high school? He never graduated from high school. I mean, he took some correspondence classes and he did some night school in Chicago. Uh, he went through the um, kind of mutual insurance, like, you know, correspondence course, basically, to get his necessary certifications to work in insurance. But yeah, he, he was a bookish but unschooled is the way I put it, right? He's a guy who read a lot. But uh, he was a bit of a rebel, I guess, when he was a teenager. And, you know, and I mean, on a personal note, I mean, his his father passed away um, really in, in his last year at school. Right. And it, he, he kind of dropped out after that. He was going to go into the army. He wanted to be a Marine. That didn't work out super well. Like I said, he's he's more bookish than yeah. um, a Marine type. But something it feels like just reading your words that, that made up for it a lot and makes up for a lot of, uh, I guess, um, Achilles heels that uh, entrepreneurs will have is that he's a great networker. Like I got this feeling he's a phenomenal networker, John. He was, I mean, everybody who met him was very impressed by both how gregarious he was, but also just how much time he wanted to spend listening, right? He was somebody, if you're designing games, he wanted to talk to you about, okay, like, like what are you trying to do? Like, how can we make that better? Yeah, and, he was a good. Uh, just, he, well, and on that note, not to cut you off, but he, you wrote he's also a really good collaborator. Like instead of sitting in a room alone, like this riffing that you're talking about was really kind of his genius. In some ways, yeah, he did all of his best work working with other people. It was, I think, hard for him to uh, get started on these things. And I, I'm kind of the same way. Like I, I know I write some of my best stuff reacting against stuff I don't like. <laughs> right? I think he would see something, he'd be like, "Oh man, there's a better way to do that." That was definitely where he was most productive. So uh, he is creating these rules. Is there any market for these rules professionally like there was for Avalon Hill games or for the, the big boys? Is anybody buying this stuff? I mean, not really. These are things you might be able to sell 50 copies of if you're lucky for a buck or two. And, you know, I mean, if you had any production value, uh, mostly these are photocopied. Like you have to, when I was talking about the little cardboard chits, you would glue those to a piece of cardboard, a paper, uh, you know, just a piece of paper they would ship in the game. You'd have to glue that to cardboard, then take an X-Acto knife and cut all the chits out yourself, right? So some assembly required. Right. I remember you know, doing that. that, by the way, John. I'm old enough to have done that. Like take out the scissors and uh, just horrible. 
Yeah. So, but no, there was no prospect of making any money from this, which is kind of what makes the story of Game Wizards so interesting because it turns out there was money in, in this in the most unlikely places. So, But it wasn't a hit right away. So he pairs up with this gentleman, uh, Dave Arneson. Tell me about Arneson. So Arneson was about a decade younger. Um, he was still a college student when they met up and Gary ran this convention in Lake Geneva that was called the Lake Geneva War Games Convention, or that for short, the Geneva Convention, or, and then for even shorter, Gen Con. This is a convention that still happens today. Uh, the first, when he ran in 68, there were only like 100 people there. Today, like 60 or 70,000 people right. show up at this. <laughs> right. um, so it's kind of became a big deal. But at the second Gen Con, he met this guy, Dave Arneson, who was very interested in a kind of miniature war gaming. Now, this is a bit different from the board war games that Avalon Hill sold. These were war games with like little toy soldiers that you would play out, not on a board, but on a table, maybe even a sand table you use to like sculpt terrain and you put little miniature trees and houses and roads and hills and streams and things like that. It was like the, the equivalent of graphics. We think of like computer graphics today. Yeah. Miniature war game was like the graphics of the 60s. And Arneson was super into those, and especially naval war games. So he and Gary started collaborating on a set of war games that were based on the great age of sail. It was called Don't Give Up the Ship. And they just kicked around some rule ideas, but eventually this got to a point of maturity where they thought they could publish it as a product, which they did. I was surprised, though, that Arneson wanted to work with Gygax after this because Gygax and the distributor really stiff him like Arneson's first check bounces, John. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not just his first check. Um, <laughs> like a, a whole bunch of promises were made about payment for this and put this in perspective as well. We're talking about royalties that would be paid for this game that are, you know, in the $20 a quarter range, right? This is not a ton of money. Now that's in some respects, even more sad right. that his publisher right. guiding games <laughs> couldn't even cough up like 20 bucks, right. but that gives you a sense of just how small this hobby was. Yeah. And, and nobody really thought about it. Like it was going to be a business. I mean, Gary talks a lot about, look, the real value of this is just seeing your name in print, the satisfaction of making a game that, that other people think is cool in this little hobby. And if you make like a couple bucks, that's just icing on the cake. To your point, when um, TSR is is founder, was it, no, it wasn't when TSR was founded. It was when Dungeons and Dragons, the idea is coming out and they're licensing Dungeons and Dragons to TSR, their company. You include this whole write-up about how either the designers, tell me if I get this right, either the, the designers can buy it back if it flops for whatever the market value is at the time, not to exceed $300. Like at the, at the most, they thought that they had a $300 game. That is the origins of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. I mean, at, at the time, and you know, what, where they came up with that number, I think, you know, it cost 3000 to print. They thought a 10% return on investment was really what the value of the game could possibly be. I got the and feeling so, also because they were all kind of broke. Like none of these people had money. Arneson's living, you wrote in his parents' basement like we do. And uh, after college, Gary Gygax now has been fired from his job and he's struggling to make money. He's got five kids. These people, nobody's got money, John. Not two nickels drove together. I mean, Gary, Gary started a, a shoe repair business out of his basement, right? Where he got a shoe repair shop. That was how he was supporting his family 
at the time that this idea came together between Arneson and Gygax that they could publish a game out of this weird set of fantasy rules, right? And this this is not what Avalon Hill was making money on, right? I mean, Avalon Hill was making money on, you're going to play through the Battle of the Bulge, you're going to play through Waterloo, you're going to play through, you know, all the, the Midway and all the Pacific Island battles. And there was definitely a market for that. Whether there was actually a market for this game where you're like a wizard, you go down into, you know, a dungeon, you kill monsters and get experience points. Like th there really wasn't anything like it. And so to describe this as the market that was untested at the time, <laughs> you know, that that too has a lot to do with the original valuation of the game. And people at Avon Hill poo-pooed it, right? They All the fantasy elements of these games that they'd then been experimenting with since like 71, uh, D D came out then in 74. Avalon Hill was like, you know, this must seem foolish to work in childish fairy tale stuff. This is like, is this for like preteen kids that you're making this? Like what serious adult person? Where we do war games. This is this is serious business. We're investigating history through these conflict simulations and doing what-ifs and counterfactuals to try and understand. But is that ultimately why the game succeeds? Does the game succeed because of the fact that they find this niche that nobody else is taking seriously and they're able to mine this, this niche and everybody lets them get away with it because everybody thinks it's going to fail? I mean, when we talk about succeeds, I mean, it, it, it achieved a very modest success thanks to that. And really that it became a mainstream phenomenon that any of us have heard of is based on other later historical accidents, right? When this this kid was lost in the steam tunnel, supposedly in 1979. Right. Um, you know, that that is the story that brought D&D to a real mainstream audience. Before that, it would have been a very small business still, like a million dollar a year business. To, but then suddenly after that steam tunnel thing, it was on its way to being a $20 million a year business, you know, which no one could have anticipated back when they thought this was a $300 idea. It's also unbelievable that uh, a lot of that stuff around that time was about Satanism and and this craziness and Gary Gygax, deeply religious man. And, and Arneson as well. Ar yeah, I mean, oh. they, took, they took this quite seriously. Arneson, he, he was part of this uh, Bible study group called The Way International, very dedicated to that. And Gygax, of course, he was a Jehovah's Witness, at least up until the point that they banned smoking. He was a big smoker. And uh, there was a point there sometime around the early 70s when JW came down on the other side of that issue and he did kind of distance himself a bit at that point, but still strongly identified as a Christian. That is kind of, uh, I don't know if it's ironic or what, but when smoking comes before God, when you're like, well, <laughs> that's, that's a bridge too far. Got to, but nicotine might be slightly addictive when you get to that point. Initially Dungeons and Dragons does not take off. It slowly does. You write as people kind of play it like the rules are sparse and you really have to have somebody teach you. But as people teach you, the game is immersive and it's fun. I mean, I played it as a teenager. It was a blast. We would have so much fun dreaming up up this stuff. When it when it finally hits its stride, what ultimately is the downfall of Gygax? Because a big part of this book is really about, I mean, so far we've had struggle after struggle after struggle that you and I have talked about. And this is just the first 50 pages of the book, John. The struggle just continues all the way through your your book. They never are able to stop struggling. It seems like they're always pushing a rock uphill. What ultimately undoes uh, Gary Gygax and, and Dave Arneson? Yeah, it's a complicated story. A lot of factors uh, went into that. I mean, Gary certainly wants to start to make real money. I think something kind of clicked in his head. He changed a bit around like 1980 or 1981. And really, you know, he was very interested in Hollywood opportunities, very interested in kind of having a uh, more of a California lifestyle, um, much less interested in actually running the business that I is felt, TSR. I felt and like it, as I was reading you, like he really grew an ego. I mean, and not in a good way, in a in kind of a bad way. 
Well, when you, when you start, you know, making serious money, you, you figure you must have done something right. Uh, I think it's a natural thing um, for people who are successful to maybe start thinking much better of themselves because of that. But I mean, you know, once he started to distance himself from his business, his business partners, the Bloom family, ended up really having to do a lot of the work. Um, and although Gygax was still like nominally in charge of the company, TSR, that published D&D, anything that the Bloom brothers did, Gary would second guess it, would say, you guys aren't doing it right, but I don't have the time to do this because I'm in California and I have a party I need to go to and I need to sit in the polo lounge and talk to film producers because we're going to do a D&D movie. Of course, they did do that D&D cartoon show, so it wasn't entirely right. a joke, but he never managed to get the Hollywood stuff to work, right? He thought he was going to be working like Orson Welles and, you know, doing big D&D movies and that never really materialized. And, you know, I, I would even go as far as say his contempt for the actual day-to-day running of a medium-sized business, as opposed to a hobby, where it really is that one-on-one, I'm interacting with you guys, I'm, we're going to design some rules, and it's going to be really awesome. Once this became, okay, now we have 300 employees, now you know we have to be concerned about all of their compensation, and we need to be concerned about company cars, and he really just kind of checked out. Once he checked out, he left himself open, frankly, to other people taking over the company. I felt like it was his passion for the game that got him in. And, and as he's being separated from the games and it's no longer games and it just is, to your point, being CEO, he didn't seem to have much love for being a CEO. He did not. Um, again, he, he spoke about it both publicly and privately. He even wrote a piece that was about his his identity crisis of, am I a game designer or am I an executive? Yeah. You can read this piece from 1981 as he kind of talks himself into, well, I should be an executive and I hope I don't regret it down the road. But he immediately regretted it. I mean, it re- really wasn't what he wanted to do. You have a quote right at the beginning of the book from Little Dorrit that says, no inventor can be a man of business, you know. Is that <laughs> is that Gary Gygax? I think it's everyone who was involved. I mean, Arneson as well certainly did not have um, traditional business acumen or training. And, you know, he was very uh, wildly inventive, a very creative guy, had a lot of trouble getting his ideas into a publishable form. He needed structures that would help him with that. But of course, he too thought, D&D is successful. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to compete. I'm going to do better. And, you know, it didn't didn't go very well. (laughs) I mean, pretty much all the people who kind of came into this with the philosophy that because I'm good at gaming, I'll be good at business. Well, that worked for a while. It worked while this was still really a hobby. Once once they started thinking, okay, we're going to be Milton Bradley, right? We're going to be Parker Brothers. This is a company, we're not going to be making 20 million. We're going to be making 280 million a year, uh, you know, in the next couple of years. Once they got that notion into their heads, things rapidly went downhill. It is my understanding, and tell me if I have this wrong, that uh, TSR purchased, I think, by Wizards of the Coast, which was purchased, I think, by Hasbro, who also picked up Avalon Hill. And now true. now Avalon Hill and TSR still exist, but they're part of the same company. That is an irony that uh, many people have remarked on over the years <laughs> because they, they were at loggerheads. They were fighting over who has the best convention, who has the best games. Is this hobby really going to be wargaming or is it going to be you know wizards and orcs and things like that? And, I, I also um, felt like as I was reading you talking about this battle back and forth as TSR grows and they're fighting against Avalon Hill, which is a whole different thing people have to read about. If you're and if you love business and you love the world of games, this is just a it, it is a great case study of that. But I really felt like on Avalon Hills then, John, when they decide to have a competing convention, it was actually more about survival than ego. Even though Gary took it as ego, I got the feeling reading you that, you know, Avalon Hill's not prospering. They're not doing great things. Or was it ego? Were they were they trying to bash each other's head in? I mean, I think they were worried. They, they viewed the ascendancy of miniature games really as, as a threat. 
And they used to back Gary Gygax's Gen Con. They were major sponsors of it. They would run conventions there. But, you know, they started going and being like, no one here is playing our games. Oh. Everybody's playing these miniature games. And that guy over there, he's got like orcs and goblins and stuff like that. And it's like, that's not. And so they felt like they needed to have a venue that yeah. was going to be about their games. And that's when Gary viewed that as a very existential threat. This was a time, of course, when TSR was making $12,000 a year and Avalon Hill was making 1.5 million. He wasn't, you know, like there was a serious competition between them as businesses yet. If anything, Avalon Hill was trying to just, you know, well, let's nip that at the butt. Before this gets any more serious, we'll we'll take over the convention thing, do our own thing. It's like I was having these discussions last week about why these big companies buy some of these little companies and then kill them right away. It's kind of of that thing. You're like, you spent one and a half million dollars and you're just going to kill it? Yes. Uh, uh, Gary Gygax and uh, Dave Arneson both died early this century within a couple of years of each other. Were they still friends? Did they get along? Did they talk? They had an uneasy detente, I'd say. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they were buds. They to some degree reconciled. And again, when, when Wizards, Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR, they actually made sure to take care of both Gary and Dave a bit uh, when they did so. Um, just to make sure there's no lingering lawsuits or intellectual property claims or whatever. So, I mean, that may have helped smooth things over as well, um, just the things that, that Wizards did at the time. But, you know, they were still still arguing over who was really responsible for D&D. Who really thought this? Who, whose brainchild really was it? And that fight over legacy um, ultimately ended up to be much more enduring than the fights over the money. Now, you can't take the money with you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The book is called Game Wizards. The epic battle for Dungeons and Dragons is, I'm sure everybody can tell, I've super enjoyed it. And I'm imagining it's available everywhere, John. Ah, yes. Uh, My last question, you clearly have so much research that went into this project, like your projects in the past. Was there anything as you were digging that really surprised you that you went, wow, didn't see that coming, like plot twist? I certainly was surprised that um, Dave Arneson was making as much money before they settled the lawsuit as he was. Mm. I, I think the traditional story of, you know, that TSR cheated Arneson, uh, they, they didn't pay him anything for D&D after a certain point, right? Like after 1977, once the advanced Dungeons and Dragons game started coming out, Arneson was basically getting nothing. Even right before the settlement in 1980, so after the Steam Tunnel kit, it suddenly made D&D popular. Arneson's take was maybe a third, a little less than a third of Gygax's, but that was still at the time like $130,000 a year, which today would be more like, you know, 450, right? Right. In today right. money. Like, so it wasn't like the guy was living in a garret. <laughs> that was a bit of a plot twist for, for me in the research because, I mean, it, I think it really is important to look realistically at how much people benefited from this and who are the heroes and who are the martyrs. To me, nobody was, right? This was a complicated, unprecedented situation um, where people were doing the best they could in a market that nobody understood and nobody knew why it was popular and everybody just wanted to hold on to as much of it as they could. This is Rebecca from Connecticut. Instead of stacking Hamiltons and Jacksons, I'd much rather be stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to John. It just, OG is such an interesting story. And it all comes back to the basic idea from one of my favorite books, which if you have any interest in business at all, and you have not read the E-Myth, you are missing out because number one, it's a fun read. It is just a story. And number two, because it's a story, it's like a parable, uh, uh, Michael Gerber, the author, takes that story and tells about why most small businesses fail. And this is the story, I think, OG, of Gary Gygax. I mean, like John said, Gary at the end was so into Hollywood and making money 
And the fact that he was now the BMOC, that he didn't care to be the CEO. In fact, I like what John said that he, you know, he's not really sure that Gary ever really wanted to manage people and manage a business. He liked Dungeons and Dragons, period. He liked the product. The bad news is, is when you run a company, you're no longer in the product. The product's being delegated to other people. Yeah, you have to figure out, and there's another great book that's um, kind of series of books about this called EOS. Oh, yeah. Entrepreneur Operating System. And um, one of the guy's points on this is, you know, you can't be both the visionary and the integrator. You can't be the person who does all the stuff and the person who's in charge of like thinking up all the stuff. And so if you're going to be the person who does all the stuff, you better hire somebody who does all the thinking, you know, and and vice versa. But early on, some of those things that really helped Gary, number one, collaborating with other people. I find that whenever people, man, this, this theme just comes back over and over again. We talked about this last week with May. She remember that when she was talking about target sharing information I mean, Gary liked to riff on other people's ideas. And so when Dave Arneson comes up with these ideas about taking this game system down into a dungeon and Gary's able to flesh it out with some more rules, like this collaboration and being around other people and uh, sharing info, inspiration doesn't come in a locked room. Like inspiration comes on the back of somebody has an idea, then another person has an idea, then another person has an idea. So you really want to be in a group of like-minded people. And also, I think another thing that really worked for Gary was his ability to communicate. People liked him yeah. until later yeah. when he just got all kinds of cocky. So uh, big thanks to John. So, so many lessons from all that time I spent in the basement playing Dungeons and Dragons as a teenager. I knew that would pay off. I knew that time playing Castle Ravenloft when I was 13 would totally pay off someday. Here it is. I have no idea about any of this stuff, so I'm going to go with you. Sounds awesome. Hey, let's uh, throw out Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. All the leftover Halloween candy. (laughs) Uh, You like that, and so does your dentist. Our dentist gives you, I think, 25 cents a pound. Of candy. Oh, to bring yeah. it? Yeah, or maybe it's a dollar a pound or something. To yeah. bring it to him? That yep. he eats it all? And he eats it all. Usually his teeth are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Does he got summer teeth? I don't know what that is. Oh, yes. Summer over here, summer, summer over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny, funny. No. Uh, it's actually your loved ones and your time, but imagine your loved ones, your time, and chocolate. Mm-hmm. That's a triumvirate right there. It's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. You go to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life to get a free quote. If you hit the pause button right now and go get that bad boy done, you know what happens? You got this done because you'll find that the application's simple. It's online. You'll get an instant coverage decision and you're going to feel so great that you finally did that thing that you knew you needed to do. You know you needed a risk management strategy. You knew that for... This purpose, it meant term life insurance, stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Hey, uh, today we're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend, Matt. Say hi, Matt. Hey, Joe and OG. I'm Matt, and I'm 41 years old. I prefer to be in 100% equities with the time horizon I have, but I also like the strategy of having something available on the side for if opportunities appear in the market. After all, how can I back the truck up on December 26th of 2018 <laughs> if I've got nothing in the truck? However, the opportunities I've seen in the last five years haven't seemed great. For example, I set some aside in June of 2017 when SPX was at an all-time high of 2400 
The next big opportunity was December of 2018, when the market dropped way down to 2400 I actually missed it, however, because I was spending time with my kids around Christmas and didn't even notice. I finally jumped back in around March 13th of last year, when SPX was around 2700 slightly above the bottom. Then last fall, I set aside a big chunk when SPX was near all-time highs of 3500 and now I'm hearing about a terrible September and big drops in the market, and I have an opportunity to get back in at 4300 <laughs> I do still rationally believe that this strategy can pay off, but now I'm starting to think that the opportunities that justify missing out on all the gains of being in the market are very, very rare. I'm currently sitting at about 15% bonds overall in hopes that a big correction will come. What would you advise? Thank you sincerely for everything you do. You got me excited to learn more about personal finance and investing, and I love your show. Matt, thank you so much for that. Boy, he knows the answer to his question. <laughs> uh, like, How many times do you want to play this game? He knows the answer to his question. Uh, uh, yeah, so cool story, dude. Um, guess what? Stop doing that. It's like, how many times do you want to touch the hot stove? I'll wait for the next pullback. It happened. It happened. The lowest point that you'll probably see in your lifetime already happened. It might have happened last March. It might have happened in 2008 or 2007. It might have happened yesterday. The day you were born. No, no. I'm saying like moving forward, right? Like the stock market goes up 70% of the time. So it always hits all-time highs. It's always doing it, which is why I can never understand why people are like, I don't know. Stock market's overvalued right now. According to what? Companies are making money like crazy right now. What drives stock prices? That's why I love, I love Matt, the fact that you went point by point through that because it, it just drew for everybody just such a great picture of, of, of why it doesn't work, which is why I know that you already know the answer to your question. Just get When's in, the best time to invest? Get in equities. 10 years ago. When's the second best time to invest? Today. When you have the cash. Do it. Rip, <laughs> rip that Band-Aid off, big boy. You know, now let me tell you what happens because Murphy's law is going to pull, it's going to, he's going to pull a fast one on you. He's going to pull a real big fast one. So you're going to sit there and you're going to hem and haw about this. And finally you're going to go, you know what? That old G fella, he's pretty smart. So he said, take all my money, dump it in the market. I'm going to do that right now. And then it's going to go down 10%. And you go, son of a biscuit. I knew I should have waited. That's what's going to happen. If you wait, which I beg of you not to, but if you do, the stock market's going to keep going up. So we're all going to be happy if you wait anyway, because it will just continue to like taunt you. So whenever you put the money in, it's going to go down 10%. That's what I'm telling you. No matter what, just stick with it, man. And frankly, 85.15 is not a terrible allocation anyway. No. But if no. you're wanting to be all invested all the time, then invest all your money all the time. You know, I was thinking about this uh, last weekend. I was thinking about the fact that when I moved over from being a financial planner to financial media, that there was a slight change in the term. And I thought that they were interchangeable. And you know, it's funny, OG, it's taken me 10 years to realize that these terms are not interchangeable. In the financial media side, and we've been doing this for the past 10 years, we call it what? We call it an emergency fund, right? Yeah. When I was a pro, pros don't call it an emergency fund. They call it a cash reserve. Okay. And I thought those two terms were interchangeable. And, and truly, they're not interchangeable. Like a cash reserve is money that's meant for opportunities. If I end up needing cash for whatever it might be, you know what I mean? It's like a storeroom on the side. And it's way, way more than opportunities. And I think this might be the way Matt needs to look at having some cash available. So, you know, he used the dry powder analogy or backing the truck up. 
if you want to back the truck up a little bit, that's what a cash reserve is for, but it's not an emergency. So there's people that go, oh man, you know, it's not an emergency. The market went down X amount. I don't want to take that out of my emergency fund because that's for emergencies. Now, I think that's why pros, a lot of pros use the term cash reserve instead, because I think this is much more of an opportunity fund, don't you? It's more of what, what Matt's talking about. Listen, I got this cash sitting on the side. I know it's kind of losing purchasing power, but it's here for whatever opportunity I got. It might be invest in a business. It might take a trip to Italy or, or to Africa or wherever I want to go. It could be also for an emergency. My car breaks down. I kind of like cash reserve. It's an interesting hill to die on, but okay. <laughs> I know you were talking, I mean, you and I were talking about this, like we got to plant our flag somewhere, know. you know? And I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. And you're like, I got one. We're going to go. What do we cash stand? Reserve for what do we stand for at Stacking Benjamins? I'll tell you what we stand it's for. It's a cash reserve. You can't handle emergency funds. Back away from that. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you. And that's why I just, you just have to take a look at all of your, all of your positions, all of your asset allocation, all of the stuff every so often, once a year is more than adequate, twice a year is fine. More than that, you're playing with it. There's a joke there. I'll let it sit for a second. At least Joe's Joe's snickering. All right. So I keep forgetting it's an audio podcast and I got to make noise for people to know if you, uh, that's what she said. Um, when you look at your entire investment account and your entire life, you can decide where the, where the overweights or underweights are supposed to be based on, you know, what's going on. You know, your cash reserve builds up to your point, you invest the difference. You have a great opportunity to buy a car wash, you do it. And then what do you got to do? Now you got to wait for the cash to build up again. We just wrote a big check for something in our house and I, I'm choking on the fact that there's like no money left. There's money, but there's, I'm like, oh my God, we're out. That's it. We're out. We can't, we would never do anything ever again. It's like, we just have to wait for it to build up again. We saved it up. It was for a purpose and off we go. So you can do this with cash. You can do it with your investment accounts, whatever. But back to the original question here about when should I invest this money? Whenever you've got the extra money, that's when you should do it. Thanks for that question, Matt. And by the way, thanks for going through those times that you saw the market go down and where the numbers were, because that's illustrated for so many people. And thanks for the kind words as well about, about the show. If you'd like us to throw out the Haven Lifeline to you, like we did, Matt, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, we will not only answer your question, but because you're brave like Matt, we will send you some Stacky Benjamins Haven Life swag, greatest money show on earth swag. Uh, we've got a lot of cool t-shirts that Brad Lark makes. That's my favorite one. You know what's soon to be my favorite one? The one that we're going to have, OG, coming up next weekend in Cincinnati. If if you haven't signed up yet to join us in Cincinnati. What are you waiting for? I know. Come on. The fact that I'm coming and the travel schedule that I have to endure to be there, people. You've got the most brutal travel schedule to get there. Are you coming from Phoenix? Yes. And going to Oklahoma right after? Yes. Wow. So- be there or be square. I'm coming for you. I'm driving. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm gonna stay in I'm gonna stay in the Kentucky side because I got a thing. Me and me in Ohio just we got a thing. Not but, getting along. So I'm gonna do my part from Florence, but the rest of y'all are gonna have a good time in Cincinnati. I can tell. I think it's pronounced if you've driven down I seventy five, you know it's pronounced Florence, y'all. It's been a long time because I don't go that way. Have you heard that story before, by the way, about uh Florence about that uh because it's on a water tower, right? Florence, y'all. So the way that the story goes, and I don't know if it's true, but it sure seems true. If only there were a place I could look this up instead of spreading a vicious rumor, if I could do that, but I'll go ahead and spread it. Apparently 
that water tower said Florence Mall, because as, as you may remember, that water tower is right in front of the mall. But people got upset with the city because of the fact that they were they were advertising for a private entity. And so the easiest way to paint it was to put a Y and an apostrophe instead of the M. Nice. So now instead of Florence Mall, it says Florence, y'all. And it said that since I was a kid. Uh, anyway. Intriguing. Yes. More cool story. Can you email me the rest of anything that you think is appropriate to know about Florence, Kentucky? How about, how about this? More important stuff going on at the University of Cincinnati. Cincinnati Bearcats, lighten it up, by the way. Mm-hmm. Head to the Economy Conference website. You'll see all of the information about what's going on Saturday and Sunday with that. And you'll also see our ticket if you go to the schedule page, our ticket for the live Stacking Benjamin show. Click on that and join us Friday night. Stay for the whole event on Saturday, Sunday. I'll tell you, if you're staying for Economy, we've got a 10% off discount because you're a stacker. Economyconference.com and put the word Stacking Benjamins in the promo code spot, all in caps, stuck all together, no spaces, Stacking Benjamins, and you'll get 10% off the conference if you stay around for that too. So wait, you know what we just did, OG? We saved you the money coming to the live show through the discount. We hooked you up. All right. That's going to do it for today. So many people to thank as usual. It just the gratitude I feel right now for, um, well, just for a lot of stuff. For me? Yes. Thank you. For you, for John Peterson, for Matt's lovely letter, for uh, the TikTok minute, um, for Adam, for sharing that, that awesome video about ETFs and the Bitcoin ETF. Just so much gratitude. Uh, Last but not least, if you are somebody who needs a better team in your corner in 2022 and beyond, OG and his team, take a new client. So head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will lead you to their schedule and then how to interface with them so that you can make better decisions next year and into the future. All right. I think that does it for today. Doug, what should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, that 14-year-olds probably should not own homes, no matter who's asking what question about it. Second, even when you have one of the most magical games in the world, it won't save you from the drama that can ensue from a business partnership. But the big lesson? That you're probably eating cheese right now. I mean, you got 40 pounds to chisel through. Get after it, people! Thanks so much to John Peterson for being here. You can find his book, Game Wizards, wherever cheese is sold. Books, books. I'm talking about books. But not cheesy books. Well, maybe cheesy books, but not ones about cassoulet. Wow, that cheese is stinky. How stinky is it? Stinks so bad it uses skunk as deodorant. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC. Copyright 2021 and is created by Joe Salcihat. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Know how I know how brilliant Paulette is? She wrote the words I'm reading right now. While she's not putting awesome words in my mouth, she helps writers power their work and businesses power their words. See how she can help you at thatwriterpaulette.com. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. 
Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, reminding you that if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. I haven't started the book tour yet. And you and I already have the most hellacious recording schedule. Yeah. We're getting ready for you to be out of town. And the day that you get back, I'm out of town to take one vacation to take a vacation before all hell breaks loose in my life for the next six months. Oh, hell breaks loose for all of us for the next three, for the next six months, months. six months. What are you talking about? But I got to November, December, January, February, March. What, What do you got going on in November? That's so crazy. You have one meeting. I have boatloads and don't give it, and I love it, but I have boatloads of, uh, of media stuff now starting to roll in, which is super cool and lots of fun, but, but it is, it is tight. As an example, we're recording very early today just to pull the curtain back, uh, because I've got day two of working on the audio book, audio book in production, man, that's hard. It's like, you've never talked to a microphone before. I know. We do three podcasts a week and I'm reading my own book and having trouble. So we start off and the director stops me. We have a director and the director stops me because I'm, I'm, she said, I'm speeding through it. I'm, I'm reading too fast, but I talk fast. And so then I had to put myself in the shoes of Joe when he was uh, reading books to his kids to go to sleep. And I would sometimes like do the big old dramatic thing where I'm doing all the voices of the characters and all that stuff. And they're like, don't do that. No, they actually were like, that's exactly what you need to do. Oh, but there were some lines that we did. Well, first of all, I got used to hearing over and over. Do that again. Uh, you missed a word. Uh, you changed that word. Do you want the change or do you need to do, do you need to redo that? Like it just over and over and over. It's sometimes you'll get on a roll where I could go for maybe a page or a page and a half without them. Okay. Uh, you need to, uh, 
whatever. And then the second half of the day, my throat kept getting really dry. So I had water in my hands while I'm, while I'm talking, but I found that flailing your hands while you're doing this thing, like doing the hand gestures makes you move your voice around a little bit and made the recording motion creates emotion. Apparently. Yes. But man, we did 125 pages of the book on day one. Which means you've got about a 10th of it done because I read your book and it feels like it's like about a thousand pages. Nice. Good. <laughs> feels like it never ends. It just goes on. It's just on. It's like one, so boring. One run on sentence. I got to tell you some of the jokes, some of the jokes in the book, the engineer is reading it and the director's reading it. And the director's been in on lots of book reads before. So she's, so Kim, the director is, you know, she's seen it before. So she doesn't, but the engineer hasn't. Because we're using an engineer in Texarkana and normally he has recording artists on, right? Recording music stuff. Sure. So he's, he said in Texarkana, he, he goes, he goes, so where are you from, man? How'd you end up here? And I said, I live here. I live like down the road. He's like, you live here. We have an author that lives in Texarkana. Like somebody wrote a book. So he wasn't experienced at doing this stuff either. So uh, he and I though are reading the book and there were a couple lines in it that we had to, we had to stop and I wish we could have left it in and I'm, I'm 99% sure they're taking it out, but I wish they could have left in some of us like not able to get out the joke because it, it was so damn funny. There's a joke where we're talking about paying off your bills. I don't know if you remember this from the, from the early part of the book, OG, where we're talking about paying off your mortgage, paying your car payment, your credit cards, your friend, Sally. And it says, Sally, miss may, if you're nasty. Got it. That's funny. <laughs> and, but, but we're reading ahead and I have to read this, right? Sally. And I'm trying to set it up. I'm trying to say it right. Sally, Miss May, if you're nasty, Miss May, if you're nasty, I don't know, but, uh, but very, very funny. And, and, and I couldn't get it out. I couldn't say Miss May, if you're nasty. Hmm. One of many hilarities. Don't be a cheap ass and go buy your own book. Right. Is that what you're saying? And you can read all the jokes yourself. I don't know what you're referring to. Don't be a cheap ass. Yeah, you're saying like, I couldn't get that joke in the audio book. So you have to go buy the book to. To find it. Yes. To get it. But I wish, but I wish that, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe hopefully they'll do like an, an outtakes. It'd be cool if they did, did an outtakes at the end of the. If Steve was doing it. He would. Steve totally would. All right. Let's get out of here. If you're sure. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all 
of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.